I like praise breaks, man. That's all I need to introduce this brand new sermon series called Let's Go Change the World. And what I wanna say is this, Red Rocks, we are not just talking about it, we're doing it. We're not waiting on a move of God, we are one. And it just feels like he's gearing us up, not to amuse an audience, but to assemble an army because what began as a spark with Jesus has now become a wildfire of a movement called the church and the baton is now in our hands. The only question is, what will we do with it? We say, oh, let's go change the world with it. So this sermon series is gonna be a four-part journey. The weeks are gonna build on each other because there is a divine process to changing the world. In fact, Jesus would say it this way, Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in all of Judea. Kind of see the concentric circle ripple effect happening here. And then in all of Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So what we're gonna do is next week, for part two, we're gonna talk about how to impact your circle, the people that you do life with. I've got a message called Famous to My Family that I'm already so fired up about, and that's gonna take us to part three, talking about how to have influence in the arena that God has placed you in. So the first watch that you get million dollar bacon at, the Starbucks where you get your pumpkin spice latte, the gym where you do upper body, this is the place the sphere God has given you to shine like a light, and that's gonna take us all the way to part four where the sparks catch fire and you find yourself part of a movement that is filling distant horizons with good noise about some good news of Jesus all the way to the ends of the earth. But all of it starts with a changed heart. A changed world begins with a changed you. So let's begin where God begins, with the heart. Today I wanna give you five hacks for a healthy heart, five hacks for a healthy heart. So Holy Spirit, we love you so much. Speak to us, we're listening. In Jesus' name, somebody say, amen. amen. Here we go. All right, this is one of my favorite stories ever. It starts with a question. Who would be willing and vulnerable enough in church to admit that you suffer with a little bit of road rage from time to time? Anybody? Okay, thank you. How many of you would say, I don't suffer from road rage. I love it. <laughs> Talk about suffering, I enjoy my road rage. All right, I'm gonna tell you a story. Our agreement is you can't judge me for it. That's how you know it's gonna be good when it starts that way. Um, I'm not a road rage guy, Red Rocks, I'm really not. I don't think I've ever used my horn while driving. I, I don't cut people off, I don't flip people off while driving. I know you're like, well, when do you flip people off? Uh, only Ryan and Ethan, and only to be funny, and they love it, so relax, okay? Um, my, my sweet, sweet wife, 10 years ago, lived in LA where everybody has road rage, and there was one afternoon she was driving and when this jerk basically ran her off the road, could have killed her, should be in jail, her reaction was just to kinda, sorta, half-heartedly flip him off and she told me she felt so bad about it that she pulled over and started crying. <laughs> and I'm like, that's how you know you don't have what it takes to be an angry driver. There's no crying in road rage. You flip him off and you mean it. Don't take that out of context. All right, it was a beautiful summer, sunny Sunday. Years ago, I was driving home from church, windows down, blasting some beeps, and uh, I put my blinker on and gently began to merge into the lane next to me. 
when all of a sudden the guy who was in my blind spot who I didn't see, he lays on his horn and I immediately, I go, oh my gosh. And I, I course correct gently, crisis averted. So I thought. This guy in response floors the accelerator to pass me, which I kind of get. It's not every day you get to pass a 2015 Chevy Cruze, okay? It's <laughs> few and far between those opportunities. And on his way past me, this guy gives me the most passionate middle finger I've ever seen and yells something that I cannot repeat in church. So immediately I'm like, okay, awesome. And we come up to a red light. And of course, we, we stop right next to each other. Of course we do. And both our windows are down. And at this point, I'm still trying to WWJD this guy. And so I, I say, because I'm, I'm a nice guy, you know, and even like I, I stuck my hand out the window earlier as if to wave to him and be like, hey, bro, that's on me. I'm sorry about that. Still flip me off. And now we're, we're next to each other. And I say, hey, man, um, you were in my blind spot. I wasn't paying attention. That's my fault. Don't let that ruin your day. Um, I'm sorry about that. My bad. Thinking we were going to have an adult conversation. Couldn't have been more wrong about that. <laughs> he, uh, he flips me off again and yell something even worse. And I was thinking like, can I sense, because I still remember it. I was like, can I censor it and kind of like tell you, hint at what he told me? And I'm like, no, I actually can't do that in church. What is it about human beings that driving causes us to say the, like the nastiest, most evil things to other people, all because you made me like do that for half a second, you know? I'm not a road rage guy, Red Rocks. However, I can be very influential with my words, for better or worse. And I was just so mad. This, and I'm, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not proud of this. Uh, this story went from having a bad guy and a hero to just having two bad guys right now. I was so mad. So I look over at him and I, I was so mad. I said, hey man, is it possible you hated your life before this and that's what this is really all about? <laughs> So calmly, which didn't help. So bad. And silence, guys. He just looked forward, rolls his window up, and I, I promise you I saw a tear on his cheek. And I just felt God in that moment was just. Wow. Happy you did that, bud. You feel better? And I don't tell you that story to show you how I got this guy. Although... Got him. <laughs> Don't do that if you have a Red Rock sticker on your car, by the way. I did. Um, I tell you that story because it's moments like that. I mean, it's life in general. Daily, we are presented with moments that are great revealers of what is actually in our hearts. What's really in there when push comes to shove. Proverbs 4.23 would say this. So above all else, guard your heart. And quick pause, because I think that verse has kind of been hijacked a little bit by the Christian dating scene, to say, guard your hearts from jerks. And you know what? Absolutely. But what about anger, comparison, gossip, bitterness, envy, resentment, despair? Those things will kill your heart way faster than a breakup. So guard your heart. Why? Because everything you do flows from it. In other words, this is the starting point. This is the most valuable thing that you have, and there is no limit to what God can do in and through a healthy heart that belongs to him. So here we go. Healthy heart hack number one is this. Hate what is hurting you. That doesn't sound very spiritual or pastoral, 
but I promise you it is biblical. Psalm 119, 113 says this, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. It's not a person I hate, it's double-mindedness. Apparently there's a good kind of hate. It's healthy to hate injustice. It's healthy to hate evil. It's healthy to hate all the ways the enemy is, is holding you back. It's healthy to hate sin. It's your first hack for a healthy heart is to love the things that are healing you and start to hate the things that are hurting you. The night before Jesus was crucified, he had one final meal with his friends. This is the Last Supper. And Jesus, um, his tone gets, gets pretty serious as he looks at Peter and he says, hey Pete, um, this is a tough pill to swallow, but you, tonight before the rooster crows two times, you are going to deny me three times. And you know Peter, he goes, absolutely not. Like, not a chance, Jesus. I don't care if they come to kill me. I will never leave your side. But of course, Peter, he does, and he fails, and goes on to betray Jesus or deny Jesus, not just once, not just twice, but, but three times. And then Mark 14, 72 says this. Suddenly, in that moment, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And this part is what gets me. Peter broke down and wept. And you wanna know what's crazy about that is the gospel of Mark that we just read is actually Peter's. So Peter is the storyteller, Mark is the scribe. Peter couldn't read or write, so he hired a younger guy to do it for him, and then the younger guy did it and took all the credit, being Mark. But this is Peter telling the story, and he says this about himself. I broke down and wept. This was the darkest night of his life. I mean, the smell of failure, the, the hangover of, of denial and betrayal. I sometimes wonder if it was Peter's hatred for that night, his hatred for that night, that ignited a, a passion so powerful in his heart that he ended up giving the rest of his life to telling as many people as possible about the God who loves you even at your worst. Healthy hatred, man, is one of the, maybe the greatest motivator for change. Um, I love ice cream. Love a, a bowl of vanilla ice cream with half a bottle of rainbow sprinkles, like I'm seven. Um, like that does something for my soul, man. That has been there for me when nobody else was in the darkest nights of my life. It whispers to me from the freezer every evening around 9.30 p.m. I mean, a bowl of ice cream, it does something for me, church. But dairy also does something to me. <laughs> and I'll spare you the details because I love you, but it means if I wanna see healthy change, I need, to, I need to start hating the hangover even more than I love the high. Some of us are not living free or anywhere close to it, and the reason is because you merely tolerate the sin that is hurting you, and you need to start hating hating the sin that is slowly destroying your life. You need to start hating what your victim mindset is doing to you. Because feeling sorry for you in the moment, it feels good. We can all be honest about that. That feels, I mean, complaints coming up, that tastes like a bowl of ice cream going down. It just tastes so good on your tongue. When somebody, when somebody walks up to you and says, hey man, how you doing? Just to seize the opportunity and for 15 minutes, just, just unload on them every problem, every pain, every ache. Can you believe he did that and she did that? Just, it tastes so good, but guess what? Next time they see you coming, they're going the other way, all right? 
more than you love the taste of anger in the moment on your tongue. You need to hate what it's doing to your marriage. More than you love your big opinions, you need to hate how small they're making your friend circles. More than you love spending money, you need to hate, hate living paycheck to paycheck. I hate, I hate that feeling. More than you love the warm blanket of a victim mindset, you need to hate all the ways it's holding you back, the way it's harming your heart. You need to hate how it's limiting your life. It gets you high for a moment. It holds you back for a month. Hate what is hurting you and harming you and start to love what wants to help you and heal you. I was reading Luke 15 recently, the story of the prodigal son, and I was thinking maybe as painful as it was, maybe that's the reason the father let his son get all the way to his rock bottom pig pen. So he would hate it so much that he would never leave home again. Never wanna go through withdrawals again. Never wanna go back to rehab again. I hate it. That, that season where I couldn't stop lying, where I was running and hiding, hate that. If you're in that season right now, you need to hate, hate that feeling in a way you remember it. To say the cross before me, the world behind me, I'm never, I'm never going back to that. I'm speculating here, but I would bet you anything. There was a moment when, when Peter was talking out loud and reliving that night and Mark was, was writing down Mark chapter 14. I bet there was a moment where Peter, he stopped and he said, you know what, Mark? I hate I hated that feeling of self-inflicted condemnation and shame so much that I actually want you to write my greatest failure into the Bible for billions to read. I'll be the representative failure on behalf of all imperfect people. I hated that feeling so much. I want you to put it in the Bible so there's not a soul who doesn't know that when you fail, Jesus doesn't, that you can't out his grace, that you can't escape his love. Regardless of what you do, you need to hate what is hurting you. Amen? All right, healthy heart hack, healthy heart hack number two is this. Examine what's within you. So let's rewind the clock back a few hours, back to the final supper. Jesus is speaking, of course, with a tone of urgency right now because he knows these are the last words I'm ever gonna say to my disciples. And in that moment, here's what happens. This is so crazy, Luke twenty-two twenty-four. 24. While Jesus is doing that, a dispute arose among them as to which of them is considered to be the greatest. I'm like, what? This is Jesus' party, his last party, his final words. He's having a moment, and it's, it's right then and there that his friends decide to start debating who among them is the best. I'm like, are you kidding me? I get so surprised sometimes at what's in the hearts of other humans. You know what I mean? But you know what? Put me in some traffic. Have a guy flip me off. Give me a headache. I get pretty surprised by what's in me. Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says this, God examine me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any bad thing in me. Lead me on the road to everlasting life. In other words, trade in your microscope for a mirror and examine what's within you. Years ago, I had a conversation with my friend Andrew and he asked me this question about himself and it was so intriguing. 
was one of those questions I'm like, man, if we all got in the habit of asking that, our world would be so different. And his question was this, he said, Doug, as a guy who knows me, he said, what's it like to be on the other side of me? And he said, permission to be honest, because I can't see me. I've heard Robert Madu say similar things. I've never seen myself. So what's it like to be on the other side of me? We're talking about changing the world here. It has to begin with the man or the woman in the mirror. You might think, well, part one of this, I mean, I don't need this. I am a good friend. And I would say to you, how do you know? You've never been friends with you. I'm great to talk to. How do you know? You've never had a conversation with you. You don't know if you spit too much when you talk. You don't know if you talk about yourself too much. How do you know? I'm a great boss. How do you know? You should put a secret microphone in the break room. You'll find out really fast what it's like to have you as a boss. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Every once in a while, I will go watch back my sermons on YouTube because it's the fastest way to get better, as painful as it can be sometimes. Because every once in a while, I will walk off the stage and I will think, nailed it. How do I know? I've never had to sit in one of these chairs for 35, sometimes 45 minutes and listen to me talk. God, help me to see what I can't see. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Pick up a mirror, examine what's within you, monitor your motives because God is way more concerned with why you do what you do than he is with what you do. Examine what's within you. Kill the comparison because envy is poison for your heart. Comparison kills. Not sure who needs to hear this, but you have a unique calling to become unlike anybody else that God has ever made because he only made one of you and he made no mistakes when he did and he, he crushed it when he made you. And not only has he uniquely made you and graced you, he's also uniquely placed you, which means you truly were made for such a time as this. He sees something on your life. You can trust his good plans. He's got a calling for you and that's a really big deal until you compare it to somebody else. Envy rots the bones. Examine what's within you. Is there bitterness within you? Because bitterness is a drug that will harden your heart a little bit more with each passing year. I say drug because chemically speaking, resentment gives your brain dopamine hits. That's why it can feel so good to be mad. That's also why forgiveness can feel like withdrawals because you miss the buzz of bitterness. And I know it kind of just feels like I, I said the real F word in church, but let, let, let me tell you what we know about forgiveness, Red Rocks. Forgiving is not excusing. Forgiving is not always even trusting again. Forgiving is freedom. It's freedom. When somebody hurts you or wrongs you, the world is unfair or sometimes even cruel. It kind of feels like in that moment, like you're in the operating room and you're awake and your chest just got cut wide open and your heart is exposed. By the way, you know what that's called? A broken vessel. You know God's favorite kind of person to use? Broken vessels. The only question is what medicine will you choose? Bitterness or forgiveness? I'm not saying that's easy, but the picture in my mind is Jesus forgiving the Roman soldier as he's nailing him to that cross. I go, oh, Theoretically, the picture of forgiveness is pretty, but the, oh, the actual process is painful. 
but the product is peace. Contrary to popular belief, peace is not a result of more security or success. Peace is a fruit of a heart that forgives. And I know what I'm asking, that pain is real. And God does not need you to be happy about your heartbreak. He counts your tears. But if you're willing, you do have an opportunity in front of you called heart surgery. The price is pain. But the promise or the possibility is for more freedom in your heart than you ever thought possible for you. An open ocean of freedom in your heart right on the other side of that. Because people can bruise your ego, the world can pierce your flesh, but if you can forgive, nothing can touch your heart. I'm convinced the ability to forgive is the closest thing there is to being invincible. Examine what's within you, for everything you do flows from the heart, amen? All right, healthy heart hack number three, adjust what you applaud. I'm excited for this one. Adjust what you applaud. So back to our story, back to the scene. The disciples are, are in the middle of a heated debate about who the best is, great minds battling it out. And meanwhile, this happens in John 13, starting in verse three. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Whew. As if to say, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And I, just, I want us to just try to get ourselves into this scene, smell this scene, feel it and taste it and see it, because these knuckleheads are arguing about which one of them is, is the greatest, and we laugh at these guys, but these guys are us. And while they're fighting, Jesus quietly gets up, wraps a towel around his waist, gets a basin and fills it with water, gets down into the dirt, and starts washing his disciples' feet. And while the disciples are arguing about their own awesomeness, and then one by one, they start to realize what is happening. My question for you is this, in that moment, do you think there is any question in anybody's mind who the greatest in the room is? Who the leader in the room is? It's the guy with the basin of water down in the dirt washing his friend's dirty feet. You see what Jesus is doing. He, he looks at his friends, he says, I'm trying to adjust what you guys applaud. I'm trying to change your definition of greatness. Because by the way, all greatness, all authority, power, influence, fame in the universe is mine. And my definition of greatness is to spend every last drop of it in order to serve, love, and lay down my life. Heaven doesn't celebrate what people tend to elevate. We elevate the platform, heaven celebrates the process. We cheer for fame, heaven cheers for fruit. In a world of the projected image, God looks at your substance, we look at the outside, he looks at the inside. 
1 Samuel chapter 16, seven, it says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God would rather you have integrity than influence because to an impure heart, influence is like a drug. Because we, we typically, deep down, just tend to kind of want influence, not for the sake of converting it to impact, but rather wanting it and having it just for the sake of having it. Because our world cheers for power and fame and we're experts at pretending we don't. So adjust what you applaud for even the glory and renown of the most famous celebrity or powerful president is like a candle to the sun next to the majesty of Jesus. I think you should want influence. I just don't think you should take it. I think you should work on integrity and let God give it because he's searching the world for hearts he can trust, hearts who don't care who gets the credit, for it is that church who will change the world, amen? Healthy heart hack number four, rest on the grace that saved you. Because it will be the same grace that sustains you. So after this, Jesus' tone changes once again and then he kind of drops a pretty heavy bomb on these guys. Speaking about Judas, of course, he says, one of you tonight is going to betray me. And John 13, through 25 says, his disciples, they stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. So all of them are rattled. All of them except one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, by the way, the author of John, talking about himself, which I kind of respect, except for the disciple, me, who Jesus loved, John, that guy was reclining next to Jesus. And I love the contrast between these two guys. Simon Peter stands up, he's motioning, and he is asking him, he says, hey John, ask Jesus which one of us he means. And this part is so just kind of weird. John, leaning back against Jesus, says, hey, Jesus, who is it? I go, okay, so in light of some pretty heavy news, Peter is panicked and goes into problem-solving mode, and John, the self-proclaimed favorite, is resting his head on Jesus's chest. I'm like, this is a little weird. John, is this really appropriate in light of a potential betrayal? Is this really the time, John, to be using Jesus as a pillow? How are you this calm? You can't be this casual about this, John. That same John, years later, would go on to write 1 John, so clever with names, I know. And in chapter three, verse 19, he says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we know the Long to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Rest on the grace that saved you. So to get super serious and spiritual just for a moment, do you remember in Jurassic Park right after the T-Rex attack scene <laughs> when they climb the tree to, uh, to find a safe place to sleep and the kids are rattled, obviously, you would be too. And then Lexi says, she goes, hey, Dr. Grant, She's terrified. She says, what if the dinosaurs come back while we're sleeping? 
And very reassuringly, he says, well, I'll stay awake. And she says, all night? And he says, all night. For some of us, and I include myself in this group, the holiest thing you can do for your heart is to take a nap, is to get a good night of sleep and find out firsthand the world keeps spinning when you're not constantly available to it. But God, what about, what about this and what about that? And he would say, well, I'll stay awake. All night? Yeah, all eternity, actually. I stay the same through the ages. My love never changes. I was the same yesterday as today. I'll be the same tomorrow. I don't miss details. I don't drop the ball. I'm not anxious. I'm not worried about tomorrow. I'm already in tomorrow. And that means resting for us is worship because it honors the God who doesn't rest. God can do a lot while you're fast asleep. God made women while man was fast asleep. Take a nap, bro. Take a nap. Back to the story. John is spiritually, metaphorically, and just literally resting on grace. Grace is a person. Peter is slightly panicked and he's, he's trying to figure out who the betrayer is. Jesus, you tell me, is it Andy? Is it Thomas? Is it Bart? If it's Bart, I will take him outside so fast. You, I will handle this for you, Jesus. Just tell me who it, you see, Peter is trying to prove himself to Jesus. Peter is doing, meanwhile, John is just being. And church, if we're not careful, we've got the entire story of the gospel on our hands in the postures of two guys at a dinner party. One rested on grace, the other tried to earn and deserve it. And you wanna know what's crazy is both Peter and John would in a few moments go on to fail Jesus royally. It wasn't just Peter. John bailed on Jesus too. The shepherd was struck and all the sheep scattered. John failed. They both fell short. And yet there's something in the, there is, a, there is an assurance in John's heart that allows him to recover quickly. And he finds himself with confidence running to the, the throne of grace, running back to Jesus. For it is only John out of all 12 of those guys, there was only one and it was John who made it to the foot of the cross the next day to give Jesus his company in the darkest moments of his life. There was, there was this assurance in his heart. John rested on the righteousness of Jesus and because of that stayed the course. Peter tried to be good enough on his own and became a casualty to condemnation. Buying the lies of the enemy that you're too messed up, Peter. You've fallen short too many times, Peter. You're too flawed. If the world only knew, I mean, why would, why would Jesus still want you, Peter? Why could God ever use you to change the world from this point on, Peter? Well, I've got news for you, Pete. It was never about you in the first place. That's the greatest news that it was never about you in the first place. It is his righteousness that saves you, not yours. It has only always ever been Jesus in his grace. It is stronger than your sin. It is more powerful than your shame and nothing can separate you from his love. You have to know who you are, Christian, and who you are is a child of God. And my prayer for you is that you would trade in your condemnation about all your wrongness for some conviction 
about your righteousness. It's been my prayer for you. It's good to feel conviction about our sin, hate what is hurting you. However, my prayer in this moment, you start to feel convicted about the righteousness you already have in Jesus. Be convicted about your goodness for the more you believe it and it takes root in your heart, the more you will live like it's true. Oh, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine in your heart. The more you rest on the grace that saved you, the more you will know the same grace that sustains you. So, hate what is hurting you, examine what's within you, adjust what you applaud, rest on the grace that saved you, and finally, number five, take Jesus at his word. So Jesus told his disciples three times at least, that's what we have on record. He told them all the details. Guys, we're gonna go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna get arrested. It's gonna get crazy. They're gonna crucify me. They're gonna kill me. But three days later, I will conquer the grave. He told them this. He didn't speak in code. Wasn't trying to trick them. Just flat out gave them the details. This is what's going to happen. And John was the only one who made it to the foot of the cross. But what's crazier is none of them made it to the tomb to watch their best friend and Messiah do what he said he was gonna do and roll that stone away and walk out with the keys to hell swinging around his fingers as uh, having just conquered death and the grave and sin once and for all. None of them were there to witness that, which is crazy to me. I'm like, if you really believed Jesus was telling the truth, if you really took Jesus at his word, nothing would have kept you from being there. You would have just camped out by that tomb pounding coffees and Red Bulls, not even blinking, just waiting for Jesus to do what he said he was going to do. And I'm not trying to knock on the disciples because if I was there, there's a solid chance I would have been with them. But those guys were fishing instead of witnessing the single most earth-shattering, life-changing event that history has ever or will ever record. Christian, your salvation is completely free. But if you wanna see the glories of God, you need to cultivate a heart that takes Jesus at his word. Because I'll say it this way, Jesus is changing this world. The only question is, are you gonna be there for it? Are you gonna be there for it? So Jesus walks out of his tomb and one of the first places he goes is to the beach to find his friend. Peter is fishing. And from the shore, Jesus yells to him and Peter sees him and he jumps in the water and swims back in. And then history records the two of them have breakfast together on the beach as the recently resurrected Messiah reinstates Peter and reminds him and says, Peter, my, my grace is all you need. You can take that to heart. You can take me at my word. And then he looks at him in the eyes and he says, now go and feed my sheep. Translation, go and start the church. And because of one changed heart, this planet has quite literally never been the same. Because Jesus was the spark, handed his baton at that breakfast to Jesus, or to, to Peter. And then Peter, I mean the proof is the fact that 2000 years later on the other side of the world, we are here still praising Jesus still singing blessed assurance, this exact same Jesus is ours. 
I mean, this is a wildfire of a movement called the church that cannot and will not be stopped. I'm telling you, you can take Jesus at his word. If he predicted his death and resurrection, you can trust everything that guy says and does. I'm like, if you predict your death and resurrection and then pull it off, like I'm on your team. Whatever you say goes. You can take Jesus at his word. You can believe him when he tells you how much he loves you. You can trust him when you feel the promptings of the Holy Spirit. You can, you can lean into the good plans he has for you. So get your hopes up again. Start believing God can do God-sized things again. Start praying world-changing, bold and specific prayers again. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will be with you always, even to the very ends of the age. And the more you begin to believe that in your heart, the more you will experience it in your life for everything flows from within and a changed world starts with a changed heart. And there is nothing, there is no limit to what God can do in and through a healthy heart that belongs to him, amen. Red Rocks, will you stand? Let's pray. Jesus, as we sing these words, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. You are mine. We pray that something supernatural would take place. We get out of the way and we let you, Holy Spirit, do what you do. Turn information into revelation. I pray that you'd help us just to hate the stuff that's hurting us and holding us back. Help us to examine what's within and do a daily heart search and, and want it out, God. Help us to adjust what it is that we applaud. Help us to rest on the grace that has saved us to be the same grace that will sustain us. Help us to, to take you at your word. Blessed assurance. We love you so much, amen.